0: Once again, this Lord's Day, let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis, the twenty-fifth chapter, and I'll read our text beginning from verse nineteen, as we consider part two of this message on Jacob, Esau, and the birthright. Genesis twenty-five, beginning at the nineteenth verse. Here again, God's word. This is the account of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Pandan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older is younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, red and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, "'Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished.' That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, "'First, sell me your birthright.' Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, Swear to me first. He swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. And thus far the reading of God's word. This morning in our morning sermon, we looked at the character of Esau as a man who was profane, not so much in the sense that he was lecherous or a horrible criminal in the way that the Jewish writings often portray him, but a man who was profane because he despised, he treated of very small worth and very low priority the covenant that he had with God and the privilege that he would have had with God. He was willing for the sake of one meal, the author of Hebrews says, to give up all of that privilege. And we learned a lesson about perseverance. We learned as athletes must persevere to the end of the race, so God's people must persevere to the end of their lives in sanctification, in holiness, in devotion for their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And they must not take it for granted that because they've been church members, or they've had some testimony, or that they signed a decision card, that for that reason they will always be saved. The only ones who can have assurance of salvation are those who persevere in saving grace. Now this afternoon I'd like to look at this story once again, but now from a different angle, I'd like to look at it from the standpoint of Jacob. And what we know about Jacob here. And, you know, the temptation would be to think immediately, because this is what we do in commercials all the time. We have the before and after, right? We have the good and the bad. We have the light and the darkness. Good guy, bad guy. That sort of thing. And so you might be tempted to think, well, we've seen what a rotten guy Esau was. Now we're going to look at the good guy, Jacob. Because the Bible says God loved Jacob and he hated Esau. But you see, if you're disposed to expect that, then you don't really understand the significance of God's choice of Jacob. We talk in our circles, our Reformed circles, of the doctrine of unconditional election. And I wonder if we understand what that means. We know that election refers to God's choice of who would be his people and and who would not. Election is another word for predestination, God determining the destination, the eternal destination of someone ahead of time. Unconditional election, or unconditional predestination, if you want to put it that way, refers to the fact that God's choice of an individual for salvation, or God's choice of an individual for damnation, is not conditional, it is not based upon or contingent upon something that he sees in that individual ahead of time. Paul says in Romans the ninth chapter that the boys not yet being born and not having done good or evil, that the decree of God was said, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. That is, Paul says it was not based on God looking down the corridor of history, if you will, and seeing Jacob is a good guy, Esau is a bad guy, so way back here at the beginning, I'll set my love on Jacob, and I won't set it on Esau. It's unconditional. It's not based on God seeing something in advance and then doing it. Of course, if it were, and it's not, but if it were, it would not be predestination at all, would it? It would be post-destination. After God saw the outcome of the story, then he made up his mind. And that would be quite an insult to the sovereignty of God. He would not really be the ruler of the universe. He would not really be in charge of what's going on. He would simply be looking to what's ash. He just has like a crystal ball. He can see at the outcome, and then he pretends that he decided on his own to have it come out that way. You see, I don't want you to think that when Arminians take that approach, that they are somehow doing us any favor. They're actually insulting the sovereignty of God when they talk that way. But I want you to understand the choices made by God as to who will be his people, who will not, are unconditional choices. They are not based on seeing something in advance. And you know that has got to be true when you look at the story of Jacob and Esau. Paul's already given us a hint of that, but when you read this story, you see that Jacob was not the good guy. And Esau Esau was a bad guy, but it's not like the good and the bad. What you have here is two really wretched individuals. And I do mean wretched. Esau's wretchedness has been seen already and expounded upon. I want you to come to know the wretchedness of Jacob today. First of all, look at his name. The word, the name Jacob means supplanter, the one who supplants. And we know that he got his name. I think this is very humorous. He got his name because when his twin brother Esau was born, Esau came out of the womb, and as Esau was removed from the womb, there's Jacob clutching his heel, holding on to his brother. It's a symbol of the fact that he's trying to brother. He's still trying to supplant his brother. In fact, you see, um, you don't pick it up very well in the English translations, but in Jeremiah 9:4. The prophet says, every brother Jacob's, in Hebrew, every brother Jacob's. That is to say, every brother deals craftily, tries to get ahead of the other guy. And yet, the Bible tells us that later in his life, his name was changed. In in the same way that Jacob typified the character of this individual, who was a deceitful individual, a schemer, a self-centered, wretched person, God later changed his name to Israel, which in Hebrew is beautiful, means one who strives with God, one who is a prince with God. At his conversion, we see that he becomes someone who has a high standing with God, rather than someone who is just a deceitful schemer. Esau's name was changed too, or at least he had another name added, Red. He became known as Red because of that love for lentil pottage that got him into so much trouble spiritually. And likewise, at the time of Jacob's version, if you will, he strove with God. Remember, he would not let go. And the angel of the Lord had to actually, you know, hurt him in in the socket of his hip. But he held on, and he received a new name from God. In Revelation 21, verse 7, excuse me, in Revelation 2, verse 17... We read that God gives to his people who overcome those who hold on to the end, those who strive and are successful by his grace. He gives them a new name as well. There's a, a white stone on which is written, a new name, a name that you see characterizes us as God has made us over by his grace. Consider the character of Jacob as well as his name today. The Bible says that he was an innocent man. He was a man who was quiet. He was not uh, violent, a man of the fields, as was Esau. And he liked to dwell in tents. He was obviously his, uh, his mother's favorite. The Bible tells much. Um, while Esau was out learning how to be a hunter, apparently Jacob was at home learning how to cook. And I think the same kind of connotations that we take in our day and age about that division, Esau being the macho guy, he lives up to the boy's personality, and Jacob being kind of a sissy, staying at home learning to cook, those same connotations that we feel in the story would have been felt maybe even more in that day and age. He had a domestic personality. He was not a man of the field. He was not a man of combat. He was not somebody who was going to go out there and show his might and physical prowess. And yet he was chosen by God. In fact, God said the elder, which is Esau, the elder will end up serving the younger. The one with the macho personality, the one with the athletic prowess, the one who can be the hunter, the country boy, you see, the strapping strong one, is going to turn out to be the servant of the domestic sissy. It's really amazing. But Jacob was not a good person. Jacob was someone, according to the story, who was very self-centered, very cruel, very selfish. And above all, the story shows us that Jacob apparently supposed that God needed his help, that God needed his crafty deceit, And so he took matters into his own hands when it might appear that God had forgotten his promise made to Rebekah that the elder shall serve the younger. We, We read of that in our text. God had said he would bring that about. And now we see Jacob trying to bring it about in a faithless fashion. Jacob, I think, here is the example of the Machiavellian. A Machiavellian person is one who says the end justifies the means. It's the one who is willing to compromise principle and use any means long as the end, which is the right end, is accomplished. And so Jacob, knowing that God had said, I, I mean, being so close to his mother, I am sure his mother had told him this. Knowing that Esau was supposed to end up as his servant, that Esau was to serve the younger son, Jacob said, well, then it won't be so bad if I achieve that God-ordained end through the means that are available to me, even if they happen to be rather disreputable, even if they happen to be deceitful and mean-spirited. You see, when his brother came in hungry from the field, I, I think the Bible would teach us that he should have satisfied his brother's hunger without any conditions whatsoever. He should have said, Esau, I love you, you're my brother, I've made this, of course. I know you've been out hungry, I mean, out hunting, and you would have shared your game with us, and uh, I'll be happy to share my story. You see, there would have been a nice, domestic, tranquil story of brotherly love and mutual support. But instead, you see a brother who says, oh, yeah, I'll help you, but I'm going to bribe it. I'm going to help you by bringing about something for me, first of all. Now, I don't know why it is, but those of you who have children at home are the ones that are smiling right now. I see that, and I don't want to embarrass my own children, but often it is the case when one brother asks for a favor from a brother the re- the return is well i'll do that if you'll do this for me and that's what you have here it's just part of our human nature instead of freely and self sacrificially loving and supporting each other we often see that people are only willing to be loving and helpful if they get something out of it and so when his brothers hunger should have been freely satisfied Jacob is scheming. He's being deceitful. He's trying to work it out for his own benefit. Real irony here. God had said by his own holy, unchangeable, infallible word that the elder would serve the younger. God had made that promise. And Jacob apparently didn't trust the promise of God. So he asked for his wicked brother's promise. Do you, do you see some? I mean, that is humorous. He'll trust the promise of his wicked brother, but not trust the promise of his holy heavenly father. It doesn't make any sense at all, but sin doesn't make any sense. And so he took his brother's birthright by, in a sense, gouging him, saying, I'll give you this stew as long as I get the birthright. Later on in Genesis 27, which we aren't considering in detail today, We see that he stole the dying blessing of his father Isaac by deception as well. Remember how he went in and pretended that he was Esau and had things on his arms to make it appear that he was this man of the field and so forth. so poor Isaac with his poor eyesight blesses the one thinking that it's the other. And because a word was considered binding once spoken, that wasn't something that could be taken back. And so, again, my friends, the story today is not a story of the bad guy Esau and the good guy Jacob. It's a story of the bad guy Esau and the bad guy Jacob. They are two twins, not just physical twins born at the same time, but they are moral twins. They are both wretched, sinful individuals. The difference between them is that later we see Jacob demonstrating true repentance. Whereas the Bible says, Esau could not find it, though he sought it with tears. He did not really have a heart. He only sorrowed over what he had lost, not over what he had done. Jacob, on the other hand, if we read Genesis 32.10, says, I am not worthy of the least of all the loving kindness of all the truth which thou hast shown unto thy servant. Jacob truly has a humbled heart. Jacob looks at himself and sees the Jacob, the deceiver, the one who wants to supplant. And he realizes that what has come to him has come only by God's mercy and grace, and not because of his worthiness in any sense. And so the divine destiny of Jacob is confirmed. Despite his sinful unworthiness, God mercifully saves him, God sustains him, and in fact makes him one of the patriarchs. The tribes of Israel come from him. God granted to him the promises of Abraham and converted him and gave him a new name and a new character to go with it. Which is to say, God overcame his hindrances to the covenant so that God, for the sake of his own name, would fulfill the covenant. Romans 9 That's already been referred to. But listen to it again. For the children being not yet born, neither having done anything good or bad, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger, even as it stands written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What do we learn as Christians from the story of Jacob? We learn from Esau We saw the exhortation to perseverance. From the story of Jacob, we learn the promise of preservation. Even as strawberries are preserved in jam so that they will not go bad, so God, by his grace, preserves his people that they will not be lost. Despite personal sinfulness, our inheritance in God's kingdom being part of those who will inherit eternal life, can be assured. We know that Jacob is in the kingdom of God. In Matthew 8.11, we read of that. In Matthew 22.32, we read of Jacob that at the time of Jesus, he was yet living, that is to say, in the presence of God. In Luke 3.34, the house of Jacob is being reigned over by Christ. And in Romans 11.26, we read that all the godliness, ungodliness of Jacob is being removed. Jacob turned out to be a true son of God, but not because of his character and not because of his accomplishment, simply because of the grace of God. Why does anyone inherit a place in God's kingdom? Where does that privilege of inheritance come from? It doesn't come from an Esau. He sold it away for a a mess of pottage. And it doesn't come from a Jacob who tried to, by any means, achieve the end of God's appointment and showed thereby his deceitful character. I want to suggest to you that if we understand the story in the Old Testament against what the New Testament shows us, that we'll understand that that inheritance, the book of Hebrews highly values and talks about later, that that inheritance comes to God's people in the long run, not because of Jacob, certainly not because of Esau, but comes through Jesus Christ and him alone alone. Christ is presented to us in the New Testament as the firstborn. I want to take a moment to explain that theologically because, you see, we have certain groups, like Jehovah's Witnesses, that like to look at that language and assume that what we're being told is that Jesus is a created um, person. That he was the first thing that God created, the firstborn of God, and so he is to be highly exalted and so forth, but he is not God himself. And I would tell you that that is a reading of the New Testament on a massive scale. Not only a misreading of the New Testament, because everywhere else we know that Jesus is presented as God equal with the Father. The Eternal One, who has the same glory and power and privileges and prerogatives as the Father Himself. But it's a misreading on a massive scale because it misses the whole point of what firstborn means in the Jewish mind. Firstborn had nothing to do with being the first one that God made. Firstborn, as you know from the Old Testament background this morning, was a way of speaking of the one who inherits the privileges of the Father. Jesus is the firstborn because it's in Jesus that the inheritance is confirmed. Colossians 1.15 says of him, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For all things have been created by him and for him. Why is he the firstborn of creation? Why is he the one who inherits everything that this world represents? Because he made everything in this world and he made it for himself. Don't you see then that those cultic groups that take away from the deity of Christ, using the language firstborn, are missing the whole point? It's just because that he is the creator of everything, that he's the inheritor of everything. And inheritor means firstborn. Hebrews 1.2 says that God has spoken to us in these last days by a son Whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. As firstborn, Christ has the birthright to everything in creation, for he is the creator of everything. And then Colossians tells us this not only applies to Jesus as the creator of all things, but his being firstborn applies to him as the redeemer of God's elect. Colossians 1.18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Because the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross at Calvary has made it possible for sinners to be at peace with God and God with them. Because redemption has come through Christ's work. He is the inheritor. He is the firstborn of all things and shall have preeminence in all things. So that both as creator and as redeemer, he owns everything. You see, this is what Paul is driving home. And it's a beautiful teaching. It's it's just, the splendor in this. And then the cultic groups look at it and and miss the whole point, trying to make Jesus less than what he actually is. But the point we should learn today, apart from our apologetic with the cults, is that all the inheritance promises that God has made, all of the birthright privileges, all of the honor of firstborn belongs not to a Jacob or an Esau, but only to Jesus. He is God's firstborn. 2 Corinthians 1:20 says for all the promises of God are in him yes and amen. And it's interesting in Galatians 3 how Paul says Abraham and to his seed were promises made. He does not say and unto seeds as referring to many, but as referring to one, indeed unto your seed. And then Paul adds this, who is Christ? All the promises of God are fulfilled in the one seed, the one true son, the one firstborn, Jesus himself. You say, how does that help me? How do I become part of the family of God? How do I inherit the kingdom of God and the place in his eternal home if all of them are fulfilled in Jesus? In Romans 8, verse 29, Paul says... That he, that is the Son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestinated he called, and those whom he called he justified, and those whom he justified he glorified. Paul says there are many brethren associated with Christ, and given the assurance of their ultimate glorification just because they are joint heirs with Christ. These brethren, in Hebrews 12:23 are called the church of the firstborn. Isn't that amazing? Christ's people are the church of the firstborn because they share the birthright inheritance with him. Or listen to Paul in Romans 814 to 17. But you have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God... And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. All the promises of God are inherited by Christ, the only worthy son, the firstborn, the one who is truly the acme of his father's strength. And by God's grace, we have been made joint heirs in him. Galatians 3.29, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Galatians 4, verses 4 to 7, God sent forth his Son in order that he might redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So that you are no longer a bondservant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You see, because of Jesus Christ, I've been adopted into the family of God. I've become a brother of Jesus. And he shares the inheritance with me. All that he inherits is mine. And what has he inherited? The realms of creation and redemption. And all of that is mine in him. You are no longer a bondservant. You are a son. And if you're a son, God won't deny you the inheritance. You are an heir through him. Titus 3, 5-7. He saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ. In order that being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. James 2.5, Behold, my beloved brethren, did not God choose them that are poor as to the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to them that love him? 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy begat us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Unto an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. You see it in Peter, you see it in James, you see it in Paul. This theme of the inheritance, of being heirs of God, is shot through the New Testament. And all of those privileges of salvation that we have come because Jesus is the firstborn, because Jesus is the worthy. Jesus incorporates us into the family of God. And something really great about this inheritance, you see, Esau was still looking ahead to that inheritance, and Jacob as well, for that matter. And in a sense, we look ahead to our inheritance, eternal life with God in his very presence, but the Bible says we don't wait until that final day To inherit it. God has begun to give it to us already. God has given us a down payment on his inheritance. Now wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. A person makes a down payment to give assurance that he's going to actually come through with the full payment. That is to say, the one giving the down payment is trying to communicate assurance to the person who receives the money in advance. We don't deserve anything from God, much less to be inherit, be those who are heirs of salvation through Jesus Christ. But the Bible says the inheritance that we're looking forward to is already given to us by God as a down payment. Second Corinthians one twenty two. God sealed us and gave us the down payment of the Spirit in our hearts. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In Christ, having also believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the down payment of our inheritance under the redemption of God's own possession, under the praise of His glory. And therefore, what God has granted to us in promising us salvation is something that is very sure. It's not an inheritance like Esau's that could be lost through our sin through our own culpability, through our own um, short-sightedness and our, our mistaken priorities. When God saves us by his grace and has set his sovereign love upon us, he gives us not only the assurance of our salvation, but makes sure we can never lose it. He has given us an unshakable kingdom. As Paul says in Romans 8, about the adoption privileges. About being heirs of God and crying, Abba, Father, he says, Who then can separate us from the love of God? If God has done that for us, nothing will separate us from his love. And he, excuse me, in Ephesians 1, verses 10 and 11, Paul says, In him, that is Christ, in him I say, in whom also we were made a heritage, we were made an inheritance having been foreordained according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will. The doctrine of predestination is not a frightening doctrine. The doctrine of predestination is a great reassurance. The doctrine of predestination is a great comfort. The doctrine of predestination is a doctrine that we should rejoice in. It's a sad thing that has become a battlefield of the theologians when it should be the very rock of our you know, existence as Christians, that God has meant because we were chosen and purposed in him before the foundation of the world. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that God, when he wished to give reassurance to Abraham of his salvation, took an oath. But you see, as I told you earlier today, an oath appeals to someone who will sanction it, someone who will enforce it. An oath says, if I don't do what I promise, let something horrible happen to me, and so and so will see to it. Now, who does God swear by? When God wants to give an oath, he can swear by no one higher than himself. And so he took an oath. Having made promise to Abraham, he then backed up that promise with a confirmatory oath, which really amounts to, let me not be God if that doesn't happen, Abraham. That's how sure it is, Abraham. My very character and position as God's promise, Abraham. And it's that same promise that we inherit in Christ. And so the Bible tells us that God has not only made us heirs of glory, heirs of eternal life in the firstborn Jesus Christ, but he's given us an inheritance that cannot be lost because it's based on the very character of God and backed up by his own oath and confirmation. I want you to see as we close this afternoon the importance then of covenant theology. I realize we started with a story about people making stew and losing birthrights, but as we pursue these themes throughout the Bible, we see how important it is that God makes covenant for the sake of salvation, that our salvation depends not upon us, upon our own will, or upon our own devising of staying in relationship with God, but it depends entirely upon God ordaining and God defining the terms and God being the source. Of a covenant that we can enjoy. Earlier in the morning worship, I pointed to the importance of divine sovereignty and how it harmonizes with human responsibility. But you know, the doctrine of predestination, even seen properly as not being a violation of human responsibility, the doctrine of predestination can be a very frightening, spooky doctrine. The Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages had a doctrine of God's sovereignty, but it was indeed a spooky, mysterious, very non-comforting doctrine of predestination. For you see, the Roman Catholic Church, the theologians of the Church, used to say in the days of Luther, could God freely send the Virgin Mary to hell? Is God's sovereignty such that he is free to do anything he wants— And if he is free, could he not even send the Virgin Mary to hell? And the followers of Duns, Scotus, and Ockham said yes. Because they wanted to honor the sovereignty of God. But you see how frightening that is? If God can send the Virgin Mary to hell, what chance had a Martin Luther? And if he could send the Virgin Mary to hell, what chance do you have? The Reformers did not simply restore the doctrine of predestination as the Bible actually teaches it. But the Reformers were aware that God binds himself to his own word. That God not only predestines the end from the beginning, but he makes covenant with man and binds himself by that covenant. And that's why we can have the assurance of salvation, because God has become the one who makes the inheritance sure through his son. And God has made promise that we will be heirs of salvation. And God has backed that up with his own character. You see, that's where the real crunch came. The important practical outcome of viewing salvation in terms of God's covenant In Roman Catholicism, you can never be sure of your salvation. And so you work, and you work, and you work, and you work, and you can't be sure. The Methodists and the Nazarenes, most Pentecostalists and Baptists in our day, being Arminian in their theology, teach either that you can fall from grace or you can never be sure that you've actually had the faith that is necessary to be saved. There's this constant sense of insecurity... Cultic groups like the Buddhists or the Jehovah's Witnesses or Scientology, Religious Science and the Mormons say that you can personally earn your salvation, but you know you never will. In our heart of hearts, we know we can't do that. The good news says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. The good news says it's because God has made covenant with me that his oath makes it sure. The story of Jacob and Esau has not been plumbed to the bottom today by any means. But I hope that when you read this Old Testament story, you now see some of the wealth of God's word in the teaching that not only must we persevere lest we prove to be Esau's who have the wrong priorities in this world, But the Bible also teaches us we have the assurance that even a Jacob can be saved and preserved by God's saving grace. And so can we, if our hope truly is in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, today we would first thank you. That you would extend to wretched sinners like us, the promise of salvation. We don't deserve that. We don't deserve your attention, much less your favorable attention. We don't deserve the love that has been such sure that we would be called back from the second death and from everlasting perdition, and translated by your grace and power into the kingdom of your dear son. We do not deserve that kind of promise. We do not deserve the grace and power that has been exercised in our lives. And nor do we deserve the reassurance and confirmation of your saving intention and that you have made covenant with us. And that covenant has been fulfilled by Jesus. And in him, the firstborn, the inheritance is sure. Oh God, thank you for the security that we do have not a security that's based upon a decision card or uttering some ritual words, but the security of knowing you because in your power you've made us again, and in your power you've granted us faith, and in your power you will preserve us to the very end. How we thank you for the amazing grace you have given us. We pray that that grace would truly change us and only a testimony in word, but a testimony by deed. And what we do. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God his Father and the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and abide upon you all, not only now, but forever. Amen.